If you've been with us or if you've been watching online, you know that we've been in a series called Christmas Pictures. We're wrapping that up today. And over the last couple of weeks, I've shown you some Christmas pictures of different things. And I wanted to show you a couple more. They really don't have anything to do with it, but I thought these were funny pictures. My, um, my favorite Christmas movie is probably um, Christmas Vacation. I love that movie. And these two pictures reminded me of that movie, except in many versions. So, Maddie, you can show the first one. Uh, I just love that picture, <laughs> the kid with a uh, little tykes, and he's got the tree on top. And then the next one uh, is a little Clark Griswold, probably. I don't know if you can tell, but he's got a little chainsaw in his hand. So, uh, but uh, anyways, as I've said, you know, I told you this a, a couple weeks ago, and I think I mentioned it last week. We tend to take more pictures around this time of year than perhaps any other time of year. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing to take pictures and memories and, and share those things. And I'm sure you have already taken some pictures, and I'm sure that you are going to take many more over the course of today and the next uh, maybe few days with family and, and friends. But I hope that we don't miss the best picture of all this Christmas. And that is the picture that Christmas gives us of God. Because Christmas pictures and announces the most startling claim in history that God has become man. And sometimes we have heard that so much that we don't realize how amazingly revolutionary and almost crazy that is, and yet that is what we believe. Larry King uh, has interviewed probably more powerful and influential people than anyone else in history, and he was once asked if he could interview anyone in history, who would he choose? And he said, I would choose Jesus, of all people. I would choose Jesus, he said, and I would ask him, is it true you were born of a virgin? Because if he was, that would define history for me. King later was asked, did you really say that? And may I quote you? And Larry King said, I did say it, and I did not say it facetiously. If Jesus was actually a God who became man, it changes everything. And whether you believe in Jesus or not, you have to admit that his birth was so big that it has literally divided history. We look at history based on defining what happened before Jesus was born and what happened after Jesus was born. He has divided everything and he continues to do so. John put it like this in 1 John chapter 4. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. That is about as clear as it gets. You see, every religion or I should say most religions, are built on concepts or principles that don't necessarily depend on who the founder is. But Christianity is not like most religions because the foundation of Christianity is the identity of the founder. God came to earth as a man. And if that's true, it changes how we picture everything. Now, when you boil it all down, uh, all of the religions that are out there are asking the question, how does God? How does man get to God? I heard a story about a guy named David Platt. He's an author and, um, and uh, preacher, and he was over in the Far East, and he was having a conversation with a couple of other, I think it was a Buddhist monk and, and maybe a, a shaman, uh, and they were talking about, they were trying to convince him that all religions are basically the same. They just quibble over minor details, but they're all in pursuit of God. And so they're having this conversation, trying to convince him. And David says, okay, so let me get this straight. You're saying that it's as, as if we're all, God is at the top of the mountain, and we're all trying to get up to the mountain to reach God. And they said, yeah, that's, that's kind of the basis of, of all religions. And he said, what if God came down 
from the mountain and met us where we are. And they said, well, that would change everything. And he said, well, let me introduce you to Jesus. You see, all religions, again, are trying to answer the question, how can a person get to God? But beneath that is a bigger question. Who is this God that we're trying to get to? And Christmas completely reframes the answer to that question. If Christmas is true, everything gets a new view, including the most important thing of all, who is this God? And one thing Christmas says is that God is on the throne. God is on the throne, and that's not just Christmas. That is 365 days a year, every single day. Now, we live in a world that often seems out of control or even worse, under the control of very dark powers. And every day we read a news report, we get a headline, you get a notification on your phone, you get something, nobody reads the newspaper anymore, but maybe you do. Uh, You get some kind of headline that reminds you that there are very evil people in this world, and there are very evil people who run this world. And this isn't new. The world has always been run by the Herods of this age. But Christmas bids us to live in hope in the midst of a world where the Herods seem to be winning. Because you see, Bethlehem, sometimes we talk as if God saw that we were in need and then somehow it's just thinking, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And Bethlehem was the answer. But Bethlehem was not a last minute brainstorm by God. Christmas happened because God keeps his promises. You go back to the very start of the Bible when Adam and Eve turned their back on God. They listened to the servant. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says something very powerful to the serpent that tempted him. He speaks of a deliverer, a savior who would come through the seed of the woman. And he says, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And from there, the rest of the Bible is telling this grand story of God's plan to bring redemption and salvation to the whole world. That's why he chose Abraham because he's first going to create a people through whom a Savior can come. Then he's going to rescue Israel out of Egypt to foreshadow an even bigger deliverance on the way. And then he's going to establish a kingdom through a man named David to foreshadow a kingdom to be inaugurated that will be eternal. And he's going to raise up prophets who are going to very specifically predict what this Savior to come is going to be like. And one day in a really obscure little village, a baby is born because God keeps his promises. Now the promise has been opposed and there have been rulers and kings and powers that have tried to stop God's plan, but the child still came because there is no king, no ruler, no power, no sovereign. There is no Herod who has ever been or ever will be that can stop the Almighty from his declared intention to destroy evil and rescue his creation. God is going to do what he said he was going to do all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He's going to bring to the earth through the seed of that woman, a Savior who is going to redeem his creation. You see, the star of Christmas is God. That's why in all the birth narratives, people who realize what God is up to just keep praising him. That's the first thing that comes out. In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47, when the angel, that's a beautiful passage, I'm not going to read all of it, but when the angel announces to Mary what her future is going to look like, that she is going to have a child, she bursts out into worship and says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In Luke chapter 2, verse 20, when the shepherds go and see the baby and they come back to their fields, it says they were glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. When the child is very young, uh, as was the custom, he's taken to the temple. And I don't want to give too much of of, uh, Pete's sermon away next week, but there's an old man and an old woman there who are waiting expectantly for this promised Messiah. And Simeon and Anna, who are looking for this hope 
for this Messiah to come in their lifetime. Luke chapter 2, verse 28 says that Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. And then verse 38 says that Anna came along while Simeon is talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began giving thanks to God, and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to to the redemption of Jerusalem. And so Christmas reframes that while this world seems so dark and so wicked, it reminds us that God is on the throne. His throne is always occupied. It is never threatened. And shouldn't that reframe how we deal with darkness? That we don't give in to despair. We don't become cynical. We, we live with this pervasive hope as we cope with the temporary powers of darkness in this world because God is on the throne. And God has not left us alone because Christmas also pictures a God who is in our midst. He is above, but he's not away and aloof. The God that is over it all has chosen to be in the middle of it all with us. And so Matthew recalls the prophecy 700 years earlier of Isaiah in his birth narrative. And he says in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, Christmas pictures a God who is not just real, but he is real close. That Jesus chose to get right in the middle of our muddle and our mess. That's one of the reasons why Hebrews talks about him being a faithful high priest. We can go to him and we can ask for grace when life is hard because he gets it. He fully immersed himself into the realities of the struggles and the frailty of humanity. And so when we call him Emmanuel, that's not a name we use a lot except for around this time of year. But what we mean is that in many ways we we mean he understands. He's been there. He he is God with us because he has actually been with us and he has been us. Jesus can say, I understand. You ever been so poor? Maybe many of us probably haven't, but you ever been so poor that your stomach hurt from being hungry? Jesus has been there. You ever been so without resources that you weren't sure at night where you could lay down your head? Many of us probably haven't. Jesus has. And for those who have, he's been there. You ever had members of your own family turn away from you even with contempt? You ever been misunderstood or misinterpreted? Have you ever been slandered and criticized by people who were protecting their own selfish agenda? Have you ever been betrayed by someone who all you ever did was good to? Have you ever had the people that you love the most let you down when you needed them the most? Have you ever been in that place where in that moment it seemed like God had forsaken you? Jesus says, I understand. And doesn't the picture of a God who understands reframe the way that we view and we cope with the hardships of this life. God is with us does not mean that we will never experience sorrow or pain, but what it does mean is that we can, in the midst of our sorrow and pain, also experience the very real presence of Christ. In the moments when life is the hardest, we can experience this supernatural empowering of grace and comfort, this peace that passes understanding. And so we don't go go through life pretending it's easy and putting on this facade, but we don't go through life always bitter either and cynical and angry because Christmas pictures this God who is with us in all of it. A God who is always looking out for us because most of all, we have a God who is on our side. Christmas doesn't just picture a God who is with us, but a God who is looking out for us, who is for us. In fact, a God who is willing to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so in Luke chapter 2, 
verses 10 and 11, the angel announced to the shepherds in the field, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. That's what we celebrate today. I've got good news for you. There is a Savior. A Savior has been born. But the question is, what has He come to save us from? There's a lot of people that will sing songs about the Savior these days, but maybe we don't truly recognize what is it that He actually came to save us from. From. Remember what the angel said to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So let's just get it out there what the most controversial thing about Christmas truly is. The thing that causes most people to miss or push away some of the most important things about Christmas. And that is that Christmas challenges us to view ourselves in a different way than we often do. Christmas challenges the way that we often picture ourselves. You see, the birth of a Savior is not good news. It's really not truly good news to people who think they're not all that bad. If we think we're just good, then what's really the good news of a Savior all about? And the truth is, we think we're pretty good at being pretty good most of the time. And we all know the narrative that God saves good people. And so just make sure you do more good things than bad things, and your ledger is going to come out where you're in the, in, the, in, the, in the black and not in the red. But if that's the case, then who really needs Christmas? If I'm okay and you're okay, why was there ever a Bethlehem? But Christmas reframes the diagnosis of the human condition and it rebukes this popular idea that we're all just basically good and we have within ourselves the capacity to be good enough to save ourselves. You see, most religions and most people see God as this distant judge and he's often ticked off and angry and he's making a list, checking it twice, who's naughty, who's been nice. But Christmas totally reframes that view of God. It says God is on your side, and God is going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And what God is going to do for you is die for you. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can be good enough. And Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death, and so only sinful man should die, and only a sinless man could die for someone else, but there is no sinless man. But then Christmas gave birth to this radical, mind-boggling, angel-shocking possibility. What if God became man? And this God-man went to the place that he did not deserve so that we could go to the place that we can never earn. John put it like this in 1 John chapter 4. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. There's another translation that says it, in our place. An atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is not up in heaven making a list and checking it twice. God sent his son to earth to take that list and nail it to a cross. And I don't have to wonder if God has my back because he placed my condemnation on his back. And looking through the lens of Christmas, we realize that we don't ever have to convince God to be on our side. He already is. And Jesus came to tell us that. 
so that we could see that. You see, Jesus really is the best way to picture God. And his birth narrative, his birth challenges that popular narrative that God is distant and God is angry and God needs to be appeased. And so you better be really, really good this year, right? No, Christmas is God wanting you to know how good he truly is. God wants you to know who he really is. And so John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. That's God's character. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with God has made him known. You see, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about you. Jesus came to change your mind about God. One of the most powerful books I've ever read, it's on my shelf still, if any of you are interested in reading, it's a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And it's written by a guy named Nabil Qureshi, who is, uh, was born, he actually has passed since, died at, I think, the age of like 34, very young. So he, anyways, he grew up a Muslim, uh, born a Muslim, grew up a very devout Muslim, even on into his 20s, and later on was converted to Christ. It's an incredible story, and ended up becoming a very powerful witness uh, for Christ, especially among uh, Muslim people. And so he had a dear friend named Sahar, and uh, Sahar, uh, she was very attracted to the message of Jesus and the story of Jesus, but she, she could not get past this one thing. And so she said, Nabil, to believe what you believe, I would have to believe that God came through a birth canal and had to use the bathroom. Isn't that beneath God? And Nabil said, Sahar, imagine you've been invited to a very fancy occasion. And you put on your finest clothes and you're almost there and then you happen to see your daughter drowning. What would you do? Would you protect your pristine dignity or would you jump in the muck and the mire to save your daughter? And Sahar said, well, of course I would jump in to save her. And Nabil said, well, what if you were there with other people? Would you send other people to save her? And Sahar said, no, it's my daughter. I would go and get her and save her myself. And Nabil said to her, so if you would give up all of your dignity to save your daughter, the daughter that you love, can you believe that God would give up his majesty to save the children and the world that he loves? And with those words, the Holy Spirit opened her eyes to see the God of Christmas, and she eventually, too, became a follower of Jesus. You see, when we see God through the lens of the coming of Jesus, it changes the way we look at everything. Yes, this world is evil, but we look at God through the lens of Christmas, and we know that he is on the throne. And he still has the last word. And yes, this world and life is hard, but God is with us. He hasn't left us alone. And we're all broken. But our hope is not in our goodness anyways. Our hope is in the goodness of Jesus. And when we look at God through the picture of Christmas, we realize that not only is God saying, I got this, but God is saying, I got you heard a story about a missionary who went to Africa to a part of the continent where people lived in fear 
because the shamans and the witch doctors told stories of the gods that were angry and were constantly sending their curses. And so you have to do these rituals and you have to make these sacrifices to keep them appeased or they're going to rain down hell on earth. And the missionary came and told a story about a different god. A god who came from heaven to earth as a man went to a cross. And there was no sin in him, but all of our sin was put on him so that all of his goodness, all the goodness that was in him could be put on us. And this old, frail woman, as he's telling this story, this old, frail woman, African woman, stood up and she said, all my life, I knew that somewhere there must be a God like this. You see, Christmas pictures a God like no other. Christmas pictures a God like that. And I hope today you can see that more than anything because then you will see everything with more love, more hope, more peace, and more joy. You truly will picture everything differently.